Hello and welcome to podcast number 12 during the time of the pandemic. Joe Weber, your host here at The Voice of the Arts. Most American families with children are now experiencing having the kids at home learning via online classes. My own grandchildren are doing this and it seems to be working reasonably well. Almost 10 years ago, this was anticipated by the very funny New Yorker writer Patricia Marks in a piece called Home Colleging. It's read here by my friend Barbara Rosenblatt. The following humor piece is from the Shouts and Murmurs section of The New Yorker, uh, September 19, 2011 issue, written by Patricia Marks. It's titled Home Colleging. Dear Bradley G. Lumpkin, we are very pleased to inform you of your acceptance to Lumpkin Home College. With an applicant pool of approximately one, this year marked the most selective admissions process in Lumpkin's history. We recognize that there are many other institutions of higher learning a candidate like you could choose, although as Daddy reminded you, the Atlas Air Conditioner Repair School did not offer us financial aid, and besides, you were waitlisted. Lumpkin College, founded last Tuesday night after your most recent thing with the police, is dedicated to instilling in Brad G- Bradley Lumpkin an appreciation of staying out of jail. In addition to its mandatory work-study program, the college, whose motto is no strompoir, our boy, is known for its high faculty-student ratio, particularly if you count grandma. The conveniently compact campus is situated just minutes from a nail salon, an auto upholstery shop, and the Feigenberg family home, where students who are still not on probation can take their junior year abroad. More great news. As a matriculating freshman, you've been assigned to live in the same dormitory as the faculty. You'll be residing in the Lumpkin Unkempt Center, which you may recall is the room that overlooks the driveway, now known as the Quad, which already contains your stuff and Timmy. Downstairs, you will find the cafeteria, where we make sure that your dining experience is about more than just leftovers. It's about cleanup, too. New student, please take note, Lumpkin still does not have a liquor license. The cabinet in Marvin Feigenberg's study is reserved solely for visiting professors in need of refreshment. Does Lumpkin have academics? You bet. Among the classes we're proud to offer are the following. Archaeology 206 includes a field trip to Brad Lumpkin's bed, where we will excavate for pizza crusts and coinage, as well as for cell phones dating back to the early paleo-iPhone era. Offered, summer session. Summer session starts today. A dialectic of mother-son relationships. Things ain't what they used to be. In this course, we'll explore various forms of government, from anarchy to bradocracy. Is despotism really so terrible? You might be surprised by the answer. Prerequisite. Apology Workshop. Introduction to Abnormal Psychology. Why would someone bury his little brother under a snowdrift, especially when you know Timmy worships you? Is it normal to sell your parents' car on eBay without their knowledge? 
These are some of the questions we'll analyze in this freshman tutorial. It meets once a week on Dr. Finkelstein's couch. Applied Mathematics focuses on solving real-life problems, such as if Bradley claims he invited 10 friends to his party, but more than 200 youngsters show up, how much damage will result, both in terms of dollars and euros, since two of the girls are French exchange students? We'll also calculate whether the Lumpkins can afford to repair the roof after they've paid off their mortgage with the funds they would have remitted to Mountain Dew University if Bradley had completed his application in time. Meet Saturday nights, 7 p.m. to midnight. At Lumpkin, we recognize that education goes beyond intellectual discourse. Each weekend, we'll hop in the Explorer and head out to the Turnpike. There, the underclassman can fulfill his court-ordered phys ed requirement by picking up litter along exits 37 to 39. And it's not for nothing that our team mascots are the mighty fighting attorneys of Fortunato, Shenzhang, and Wadia. This year, we're hoping to trounce the New Jersey Court of Appeals. Go Lumpkin attorneys! Lumpkin Home College is not all fun and games, however. Aside from Yale, LHC is the only college in America where first-year students gather to wet mop grandma's room every Thursday which is the least you can do after what you did to her credit rating. Other clubs and campus organizations include Varsity Posture Squad and the Society for Writing Thank You Notes. Unfortunately, Amnesty International is no longer allowed on campus. Why choose Lumpkin Home College? <laughs> because, honey, you have no choice. Sincerely, Florence Lumpkin, Dean of Undergraduate Studies. Now a good friend of mine sat with me and he cried He told me a story I know he hadn't lied He said he went for a job and this a man said Without an education you might as well be dead Now don't get me wrong, he said it's not who you are People come to me from a near and a far But I do just work and I follow the rules I didn't have an education so I had to go back to school Tell me one more time people now What he said Without an education you might as well That he loves so well And of their personal trouble I will not tell Now those guys didn't seem good And they didn't seem bad They didn't seem so happy And I know they weren't sad But the point is it That they follow the rules They got an education And they all finished school Now underneath his tears I can see the true fact When he dropped out of school Never, never went back Tell me one more time, people Again, what he said Without an education You might as well Got to, got to, got to listen now, now
up his friends to check their pay ring. When he got there, the crib he found that he was a drag. Cause man, they were clean and his clothes were like rags. One was a businessman with a plenty of dough. He had his thing so set up, he knew he couldn't blow. The other had his job so uptight. He had his whole family and his kids all out of sight. Tell me one more time now. What he said without an education. listening to podcast number 12 here on the Voice of the Arts with Joe Weber, your host. Our podcast is going to feature some of the music of jazz clarinetist and soprano saxophonist Sidney Bechet, and also some excerpts from his autobiography. Bechet was born in New Orleans in 1897 and died in 1959. He had a remarkable life and career, much of it spent in Europe and in England. He played for the royal family in Great Britain, but spent a lot more time performing in Paris at the Vieux Colombier. He was the grandson of a slave named Omar, who had been murdered shortly after Sidney's father had been conceived. His grandmother, also a slave, had been freed and helped financially by her owners out of a sense of guilt for the responsibility for Omar's death. First, we'll hear some of Bechet's music, and then an excerpt from his autobiography detailing his deportation from France. ¶¶ 
Besides being a terrific musician, Sidney Bechet was a keen observer of the world around him. He was born into the family of a musical Creole shoemaker in 1897 and died in 1959. In this segment of his autobiography, he describes an experience he had while playing in France. It was almost like prohibition up there in Montmartre in those days. It was almost like back in the days when you'd get a bottle of essence of garden gin and some seed alcohol and some distilled water and pour it into your bathtub. You'd start out with four people waiting in the other room, and when you looked out again, there'd be ten or a dozen. One of them, he'd come into the bathroom. Here, let's taste some of that, he'd say. Then first thing you'd know, you'd have a consultation. No, it's not right yet, somebody would say when he'd tasted it. Somebody else, he'd try it, and he'd decide it needed some. There'd go the rest of the gardens. By that time, you were gone, too. When you come out of the bathroom with a jug of that stuff, there wouldn't be more than room enough to stand up for the crowd. Everybody playing the piano, talking, drinking, fooling around. Everybody full of a kind of excitement, a kind of waiting for something big to happen. Well, that's the way it was in Montmartre in 1928, except that there wasn't any need to be making your own gin. And just like there was the prohibition mobs in New York, there was that kind of mob around Montmartre, too. There were always men there who had rackets. They were making a lot of money by getting paid off by the owners of the clubs and cabarets just so they could stay open. It was a kind of protective association, they called it, but it was really just a shakedown. And to run a racket like that, you need a certain kind of person, a thug-like. There were a lot like that around in those days, and sometimes when one of them got drunk, it wasn't safe around them. So what happened as a result of things like that, nearly everybody, he carried a gun. You could be sure if you had a gun on you. There was tough times back there. We musicians, the ones I knew the most about, we'd meet when we were off work. We had regular places where we could expect to find one another. Mostly it was in one little cafe off Rue Fontaine. We'd sit in the back room of this cafe and we'd joke, play a few cards, or someone would take out his instrument, or we'd just talk. One night, a fellow named Mike McKendrick was there. He was the one I had the trouble with, and the trouble was really brought on by a fellow who was supposed to be his friend, Glover Compton. Glover was a piano player. He was from Chicago, and he was always talking about being a northerner. He really liked to talk big. Whatever he had to say, he talked like he expected everyone else to listen and be mighty ready to shake in their boots while they was doing it. It was like he was looking for a reputation as a bad man, as someone really evil. He wasn't no one in any big-time way, but he was trying to cut in as much as he could. He was always acting like he wanted to stir up trouble like he wanted to be known as a place where trouble started. For some time before this night, he'd been getting after Mike, telling him this and that about me, getting to see if he could start an argument between us, get some kind of a feud going. Mike was just a kid then. He was playing banjo somewhere in one of those cabarets. I don't know nothing about his wanting to be any troublemaker, but this night he started coming at me with a lot of stories he told me this Glover had passed on to him and I wasn't in any mood for that kind of thing. So finally we had an argument. It didn't really amount to anything right then, and we both had to leave to go to work after a while. But all the same, there had been this argument. The same night, it was, it was actually morning by then, I was walking home from work and I passed this cabaret. I was about to go inside, but just as I got to the door, I saw a Glover. He had a whole party with him, and I knew if I went in there, he'd be only too happy to start some more trouble, so I stayed out. I just turned around and started to walk off, but Glover had seen me and he sent Mike out after me. 
So Mike came hurrying up after me and he said, Sidney, come on inside. My friend wants to see you. If I went in there and sat down at their table, there'd be a whole lot of baiting. And there was only one way that could end up. So I said, you tell your friend I'm not special about seeing him. But Mike started insisting. He drunk some, quite a bit in fact, and he wouldn't listen to anyone saying no. Finally, I just told him why didn't he smarten up some. What you doing getting mixed up in something like that Glover, I said. Don't you have anything better to do? Right away, he started in talking like this Glover. Mike, he was from Chicago, too, and he picked up these big ideas about being a northerner. I don't think I like you, he said. I don't think I like the way you look, Dixie boy. You want to see what we do to people like you in Chicago? Well, it's one of those things I know something about. I heard that all before. Northern musicianers, they start themselves going sometimes. There's something jealous-like about them when another musicianer, he's from the South. So now this one, he's going to show me some of Chicago. I didn't want to mess with him. I didn't want any trouble, and just so long as he didn't go too far, I didn't want anything at all to do with him. So I turned to go on, and just as soon as I turned my back, he began to shout out all excited. My friend won't like that, he said, and he pulled out a gun and fired two shots at me. I pulled out my gun then. He hadn't hit me, and my first bullet grazed his forehead. Then Glover heard the shots, and he came running out, and one of my bullets got him in the leg, and another hit a girl, and one ricocheted off a lamppost, and what's really unfortunate, hit some French woman who was passing on the other side of the street on her way to work. It was something the way it happened, something hard to make it clear. It's like there's somebody else inside a man, somebody that's not really that man, and when a thing happens, an anger like I had then, that other person takes over. That's not to make excuses. I know well enough it's me all the time. That's just to try to tell you what feeling there was to it, standing there on the street, not even giving a damn how many shots they're sending back at me, not even seeming to know whether or not they're shooting at all, just standing there pumping my gun and wanting to see every one of them dead in front of me. And all the time I don't like it. There's a kind of disgust to it. I'm not for covering up any part of what's true. I can be mean. It takes an awful lot. Someone's got to do a lot to me. But when I do get mean, I can be powerful mean. That's the way I was right then on the street outside that cabaret. I'm busting mean. If someone was to change the world into glass and throw it up in front of me, I was in a mood then to just smash it right there. I would have smashed any damn thing. And then after it was over, the mood was gone from me. All I got left was disgust. I started walking away then. I was on my way over to the police to give myself up and explain to them what had happened. But before I no more than got started, I was identified by some bystanders who pointed me out to a policeman who came up from behind me. He wanted to know what the trouble was. He told me the people had pointed me out. Right off, I told him. I wasn't denying any part of it. I told him exactly what had gone on. I wasn't afraid of anything serious happening. I'd had nothing to do with starting it. All I did, I was acting in self-defense. There was that girl who had been with Glover. She'd gotten a scratch, but I didn't give a damn about her. And at the time, I didn't know about the French woman. But it was right there that the real trouble started. That French woman had had to go to the hospital. And just the fact that she was a French woman and I a foreigner, I had sent her to the hospital. That put it into a whole new jurisdiction like the police took me and Mike McKendrick in, and right away our friends started raising some money for us. Mike had got some very influential friends who got him a lawyer, and a lot of people pooled some money together and got a lawyer for me. Gene Boulard put out a lot of money to help me. 
Jean was a real man about Paris. He'd made himself the kind of man people around Paris had a need for. The cabarets, the clubs, the musicianers. When there was some trouble they couldn't straighten out by themselves, they called on Jean. He was a man you could count on. Jean could almost have fixed this. It would have been just a fight among musicianers. But this French woman who was hit, that took it out of the law of being simply something that Americans were involved in. Jean just couldn't get it quieted down. And Mike and I both had terms to serve. We both got sentenced. But that Glover, he still wasn't ready to forget it. It was in 1928 I went to prison. I was in jail for 11 months. And when I came out, I had no rights. It wasn't even legal for me to stay in France. And yet even then, I found out later, this fellow Glover was working at his lawyer, planning some way he could arrange for me to have more time to serve. When I ran into him later, I told him he'd better watch out for that other leg. I was tired of the whole thing, and I wasn't fixing to take any more of what he was giving out. we're going to hear a small passage from Sidney Bechet's autobiography with him talking about Bessie Smith. It was at Virginia Liston's home where I first met Bessie Smith. I was around there one night and some person told me this Bessie, she was a damnedest singer, and I asked her to sing, and that's how it started. 
Just as soon as she started out, I knew her voice was something that would really have the public going. I thought she should be in a show, and I was all eager to arrange for it. And the way it turned out, I had no trouble at all getting her in. Gloria Harvin, she was a fine singer, but Bessie had her beat. After that, we toured together. That show, it went all over. Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, we made them all. And everywhere we went, we stopped the show. People tore the house down. I was playing the part of a Chinaman. How come? That was my name. That wasn't the lead, but that's the way the show was written and named. I had a Chinese laundry, and Bessie would come on, and she wouldn't have enough money for laundry, and she'd start singing. She'd go off into St. Louis Blues, and by the time she got started, I'd be off from the stage out of sight, but soloing there with Bessie out of ways singing, and the way that act would go, man, that was the real thing. That was a pleasure. Most of the times before we was even through, people would be clapping and yelling. They just never heard anything like that before. There was just nothing better of that kind that could be given to them. But a little after that, the show was finally to come into New York, and somebody decided it had to be dressed up. It had to be all changed and fancied for New York. So they changed that act, and right there, all that fine naturalness we had in doing it our way was all taken out. They gave Bessie some number to sing that was no good for her, and that killed it. The show didn't last long after all those changes. But there was something else, too, and it did as much to kill our numbers as all that changing. Bessie and I, we'd been going with one another. After a while, we had some falling out. It was just one thing and another, the way people get. Sometimes we got to fight real bad. I don't know what it was, misunderstanding, some kind of jealousy. We just weren't being good for one another. It seemed after a while like Bessie was feuding with me, and from that she got to feuding with the music. We weren't doing the act together anymore. I was still there playing, and she was still there singing. But the being together that we had to have... That understanding there had to be inside the music. It wasn't there anymore. Madam Box was quite beloved. Servants by the score. at each door. and maids but one day Dan, a kitchen man, gave in his notice he's through. She cried, oh, Dan, don't go. It'll grieve me if you do. I love his cabbage, crave his hash, deppy about his sucker taste. I can't do without my kitchen man while about his turnip top like the way he warms my chop I can't do without my kitchen man anybody else can leave and I would only laugh but he means too much to me, and you ain't heard the half. Oh, his jelly roll is so nice and hot, never fails to touch the spot. I can't do without my kitchen man. His frankfurters are all so sweet. How I like his sauce should meet. I can't do without my 
the very same Bessie Smith that you heard Sidney Bechet talking about in his autobiography. Folks, that's going to wrap things up for Podcast 12. Thanks for listening. We're going to close out the show with the tune Avalon performed here by Sidney Bechet and company. <laughs>